Welcome to the Menlo Midweek Podcast, where we are getting some extra time with the speaker from last Sunday's message to go a little deeper, get some extra thoughts about the message, and get a behind-the-scenes look at their teaching process. We're your hosts, Mark and Jess. Thank you so much for joining us. This is Menlo Midweek. Hi, everybody. Mark and Jess here. And before we jump into today's conversation, I want to share with you one of my favorite things that we do here at Menlo Church. This is our commitment in the Thanksgiving season to serve others. It's Mm -hmm. one of the way that we share Jesus's command to love others, especially those that are in the Bay, our neighbors right here. Yeah. And one example of how we do this is serving through our mobile food pantry at the Mountain View campus. Such a cool thing. Twice a month, volunteers take time out of their day and they just distribute food, build relationships, and it's all with the locals of the Mountain View campus. So in addition to supplying food, God provides in so many ways through this ministry. Jess, do you have any stories about this? Yes. I heard about a Brazilian woman. She had just received a cancer diagnosis. Mm. She came for food, but we they slowly realized that what she really needed was some prayer. Okay. Um, and they found a Portuguese translator who prayed over the phone for her healing. What? And the volunteer community surrounded her during that prayer. It was They said it was just such a cool moment. Mm-hmm. Um, another example is that over the summer, some high school students served with them. And while the students grew in their faith, the food recipients enjoyed the dose of energy that they brought and the care, of course, you know, seeing youths serve you is just an amazing thing. Shout out student ministry. I know. And we cannot do this kind of outreach on our own. For one, it takes partnerships and the food pantry is run with two of our mission partners, City Team San Jose and Reach Potential. Yeah, those are I mean, City Seam San Jose and the Reach Potential Movement, like they're such great partners that we have. We're so lucky to be able to be with them. And outreach like this is really made possible through your generous giving. Mm-hmm. This is what, like why it's my favorite thing, but we give every dollar that we get to the Thanksgiving offering, it goes directly to making the Server City projects in winter possible. Every dollar. Every dollar. Every dollar. And when you give to the Thanksgiving offering this year, you will be giving to next year's Winter mm-hmm. Serve Your City project. So this means that you'll help ensure that others have food, emergency shelters, offer blood drives, support for foster children, and all of that. That's awesome. So if you've actually never given to Menlo Church before, we believe that the Thanksgiving offering is just a great time to take that leap Mm -hmm. and give for the first time. Your donation, like we said, will be spent entirely on projects that help our local neighbors through our Serve Your City projects. Yes. And Serve Your City projects and serving in general, that changes Mm -hmm. lives. That's us going out in the community, brings hope, it gives joy. And it's how we live out Jesus's command to love each other and those around us. So thank you for your support in the Thanksgiving offering and your support for loving our neighbors. Yep. You can go to menlo.church slash give and look for the area to designate it to the Thanksgiving offering. If you come on a Sunday morning, we have special envelopes for this as well. And we really thank you so much for all of your generosity and all of your giving and Serve Your City Projects could not happen without your generosity. So thank you. Yes, thank you very much. And now let's jump into Menlo Midweek. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Menlo Midweek. Mark here. And I'm Jessica. And today we have our super awesome guest speaker, president of Fuller Seminary, Mark Laberton. Thank you. Thank stu- you. Our Great studio audience is going crazy right now. <laughs> yes, exactly. Mark, thanks so much for your time. Of and course. Being here. Happy to be here. Yes. So you taught two times this Sunday. That's got to take a toll on you. How you feeling? It's over now. Fine. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, find, okay? I find preaching uh, energizing. So oh, really? It doesn't exhaust me. It energizes me. So awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And how long are you up in the bay for? Uh, just this weekend, actually. Okay. I've been here for a few days, but uh, head back to Pasadena later this afternoon. 
Okay, so I grew up in the Bay Area in Northern California, and Mark grew up down south in Southern mm-hmm. California. So I'm curious, yes. since you've lived in both spaces, Indeed. what is your favorite thing about Southern California, and what's your favorite thing about Northern California? Well, there's so many things I now love about both. So I was absolutely the Northern California, like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> People live in Los Angeles, really, truly, like, why would a person choose to do that? That's completely gone. I get why people love uh, LA. So I I love the culture. I love the creativity. I love the fact that creativity is expressed in so many different ways. The Bay Area does feel technology dominant, uh, whereas in LA you feel the amazing diversity of creativities that are expressed in different places. I love that. And I love uh, warm days, especially warm evenings. So that's a really great gift. Not so true in the East Bay where we're moving back. But uh, but on the other hand, I love moving back because of people, but also because of um, the fact that there's something about the ethos of the Bay Area and its eclecticism that uh, I've always really loved. And the air is wonderful, and the um, and the the subcultures here are ones that I really really value. So we're delighted to move back. So travel wise, you got up here a couple of days ago. Any highlights that you've had since you've been up here? What have you been doing? Uh, well, I've run into a couple of people that I didn't expect to see, so that was really mm. fun. Oh, that um, is always people fun. that I've known in other parts of my life, um, mostly during the time that I was in Berkeley. So those were really great hopes that I came up with, thinking I, I'd love to be able to see these people, but I wasn't sure it was going to work for various reasons, and it did work. So that was really a f- yeah. very fun part, and it's great to just feel like that the atmosphere feels over COVID in a way that mm. is even stronger than I feel in LA somehow. Mm. Oh, interesting. Um, LA was so deeply locked down. Mm-hmm. And in Pasadena, you had the healthcare system of the, of the federal government, the state government, the LA County, and mm. then of Pasadena having its own health service. So oh right. it was like layers and layers and layers. And as, as, as an institutional leader, you have to abide yeah. by these various constrictions, mm-hmm. which were severe at times. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were happy to do it because of the benefits that, to anybody who might be vulnerable. But on the other hand, it was happy news to be free from a lot of that. And mm-hmm. we're very, very grateful. So that that's part of the fun of being up here too. Yeah. And I was kind of surprised, but you even uh, played the Berkeley card I did. during your message. That's a, a bold scary. move. That it was. was bold. Yeah. I thought about, wow, so our common enemy was really USC. Right. So, yeah. so that mm, felt like yeah. a little bond over the USC thing. Was Scott uh, Pombus just sitting in the front row glaring yes, at he, you he was at Stanford? Yes, exactly. Uh, no, it, it was funny. A bunch of, of USC people came up afterwards and made comments. And uh, they said, oh, it's completely true. It's completely true. I just hear the fight song and I know exactly what <laughs> So it's pretty intense. Well, that's awesome. Well, if you don't know what we're talking about, we would encourage you to go back and listen to the message from this past weekend. It was amazing. But uh, would you mind summarizing your message for us? And we'll dive in from there. Yeah. So we were looking at the book of Daniel, chapter three, primarily, which is a a section that's often imprisoned in Sunday school classes (laughs) and Mm -hmm. on what used to be at least the felt board approach of Sunday school teaching. Mm -hmm. Very two-dimensional. And and because it's often thought of as a children's story, it completely misses the actual drama of what's happening in the book of Daniel, which is this major part of Israel's life about what does it mean to live as faithful exiles. So that was what we were looking at and the challenges that are related to that. Yeah. And I love the piece in it. You kind of, you started with, you know, these two paradigms mm-hmm. and then from there Exodus kind of picked up. Yeah. yeah. Would you mind going into a little bit more detail about that? Yeah. 
So the two dominant paradigms of the Hebrew scriptures are the Exodus and the, ex- and the exile. The Exodus is really a paradigm of Israel being uh, under under the dominant authority and power of Egypt for 400 years. That mm. kind of protracted long suffering and a longing always to be able to be free. Um, and that ultimately happens through the leadership of Moses and God's provision of a way and a promised land. But that paradigm is completely different than the exilic paradigm, which is God using a heavy military political power, namely uh, Babylon, to take over Israel as a spiritual discipline, Mm. despite having sent all these prophets to get Israel to turn its life around and failing. God sends them into exile to say, I'm going to strip you of all the the signs of my gifts to you, and I'm going to ask you now, how will you live? simply based on the fact that I love you and I've promised to be with you. How will you enact that life when everything else is taken away? I think that is a picture of where we are in culture and and society right now in relationship to the church. And I think it's exactly that tension. If we think what we're trying to do is recover the promised land, that's one set of battles, and that's a lot where culture wars are devoted. How do we make sure that we can recover and keep that promised land. My concern is I think we live in exile. And interestingly, in exile, you don't hear, you hear a longing for getting back to Israel, but mm-hmm. what you do not hear is injustice. You don't say we're wrongly held because in fact, it was the nature of God's own mm-hmm. gift that they should be in, in this uh, exilic situation. So the question then becomes, how do you let exile establish a whole new set of questions? What does it mean when we don't have the land or the temple or the sacrificial system or all these other things? Now we have no power and authority. How do we orient ourselves? How do we remember who we are? How do we live in that context? How do we face power? Those are gigantic issues. Yeah. And I think those are the issues that the church is now facing. Yeah, and I love how you how you that led into it being a question of identity yeah. and self perception, mm-hmm. right? Because at that core of all those questions is where am I, who am I, exactly. and how am I experiencing what's precisely. around me? Precisely. Mm-hmm. And I was saying in the sermon that I feel existentially tied to that because we're mm. about to move, mm-hmm. and and so that has its own displacement. But mm-hmm. it's not just a move; it's also a move away from a job that's titled president, which mm-hmm. I've never occupied before. Uh, such a job and it's a very strange thing to have people suddenly start calling you President Laberton and then to live for 10 years <laughs> being called President Laberton mm. like what is that who is that that's not yeah it, it's always been clear to me that that is not who I actually am but the the point is we're now all that's going to go away all the prerogatives and privileges of that will also be re, re- defined that's exactly what we're choosing and wanting. And mm-hmm. at the same time, it's disorienting because it brings mm-hmm. back the question, so who am I when mm-hmm. I literally am no longer, quote, President Laberton? Uh, and for any of us, when we change jobs, when roles significantly alter, when we get married, when we uh, take on certain jobs and responsibilities, when we've had certain influence, and then suddenly the thing that's given us that influence is removed, even in this case, selectively, and and desirably removed, and at the same time, that will be disorienting. And mm-hmm. uh, I think lots of people experience this, not just in sort of re- more uh, in the older years of their life, but really at lots of transition mm-hmm. stages mm-hmm. Uh, where we have to be clear. And society and culture suggest right now that there's millions upon millions of people who do not know who they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a-, a lot of that is based off of 
maybe changes that one can control or, yeah. or opt into. Mm-hmm. But again, another piece of that is culturally changing environments right. as it's well. So that offers up a more higher level. I have no control over right. say over which way things right. are going. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's always live theater and other people <laughs> are dominantly in control. Mm. So I have certain roles that I can play in my like that. corner of the world. Yeah. Um, but the, yes, against the backdrops that we all know that are so much bigger and so much more titanic uh, Mm -hmm. really in their influence and sometimes in their consequences. Mm -hmm. And we can't, the ordinary citizen can't actually affect that very much. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think it's interesting to watch that playing out in the debates around American democracy because, because the case needs to be made that in fact there is a way where that kind of vote giving can actually provide some sort of influence, but we all know that it's tiny. Mm-hmm. Um, we also know that in some states, that's that's enough, right? Tiny numbers are still numbers. Mm-hmm. So it it I think as a paradigm, it gives us an interesting way of recalibrating again the influence of individuals. But I think the danger that some writers are pointing out is that we've moved from being just an individualistic um, culture mm-hmm. to being um, a, a culture that's defined by the curated self, the individualized culture, which mm-hmm. is not just the self, but now the self that only will let in those particular things that we believe we can manage by our social media, by our jobs, mm-hmm. by our ability to locate ourselves and be not there and pri- quite precisely here and not there. And part of being uh, so many people deciding to work from home, I get it, I get it, I get it. And it's a decision to say, I want complete control of how my life actually really mm-hmm. unfolds. And it's gonna be in my house, in my pajamas, working until <laughs> noon, then maybe working out, then maybe getting dressed around three, <laughs> and then deciding how I'm gonna live the rest of the day. And it's all because I have the ability to control all of those dynamics. That is either you know uh, a rabbit's hole, um, or it is some kind of new reality in any case that's gonna change so many things. It has already changed many things, but it will keep changing many things. I, I don't feel personally attacked by that at all. So I love how we're speaking in hypotheticals and yes. Hey, I do lots of uh, lots of video conversations where like a lot of yeah. other people, you know, you're dressed on top and not dressed on the bottom. So yes. um, yeah, so. That's great. And we saw um, a lot of- I should say not, not dress, <laughs> you know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah. Yes, Other yes. clothes on the bottom. Not work appropriate. <laughs> yes, yes. shorts and yeah. shorts on the bottom, but yes. suit and tie up top. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And we saw this as an example in the second part of your message with um, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon and his response to impending change or right. identity crisis. Right. And I thought it was interesting how you pointed that towards uh, this quote, Fear is a mesmerizing rhythm in our society now. Yes. I thought that was a very, like, I haven't heard fear talked about it in that way. And so much of this cause for, you know, identity and what can I hold on to is that control. Absolutely. And I would probably assume that that control comes from a fear of not being in control. Right. So I thought that was brilliantly put. And I'm just wondering how you yeah. arrived at that. Well, I'm just so taken with the fact that fear is so pervasive. It's everywhere. And it's for people of all kinds of means and circumstances, and nobody seems to be free of it. Mm. Very few people are living in a world in which fear is, is an, I would say, appropriately placed, 
we all feel so overexposed, like who knows where the danger is coming from at any given moment in any direction. Mm. Then you add to it being a woman, you add to it being a person of color, you mm. add to it uh, being physically vulnerable or uh, whatever it might be, that we live in a world where predatory behavior is real and pervasive, right? So there are real dangers, and God's wired us to be sensitive to danger. That's why we're alive is because we're sensitive to danger. So the positive side is fear and anxiety is a really, really helpful thing because mm -hmm. we wouldn't be alive if we didn't have good fear instincts. But it's become almost a lifestyle. How do we embrace a lifestyle of fear that mm -hmm. is really about chasing away, bolstering our protection, securing our individuated self, so that I have as least fear as possible. But even as I do so, I'm actually measuring it against fear still. So to me, um, this is partly, I've been working on a book on fear for some time, mm -hmm. which I hope will see the light of day when I have more time to actually finish it. <laughs> uh, but it's a book about what it would mean to really let the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom become the calibrating center to understand what it means to face all other fears. Mm. I don't think it's meant to chase away fears as though if you fear the Lord, you have no danger. That's not true. It's you fear the Lord as a grounding, a homing instinct mm -hmm. to understand how do I understand my life? And it's real. And the real dangers of living in a, in a violent world, in a vulnerable world, in a predatory world, how do I find freedom uh, that is not explained by perfect circumstances, which is the only way we understand it right now. Like I have to be in perfect circumstances so that I'm finally free. Mm. That mm. is not gonna happen. It's, yeah. not, it's not gonna happen for anything more than maybe the 1% and even the 1% are not gonna find it because they're protecting their right to be in the 1%. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I could go on, but you get the gist. Yeah. It's just such a pervasive thing. And I do think the faith that we testify to in Jesus Christ is a faith that is meant to actually land exactly in that zone. But that's not what we've done. We've mm. created instead safe church, which is really more about trying to present a gospel as though evil doesn't exist, as though dangers aren't real, or that we make other people the the, the source of fear. Whereas a lot of fear is self-generated. Mm. I mean, an enormous amount of fear is is what I do with reality. It's not what reality is doing to me. Mm. So. Um, yeah, you can you can see it. from my point of view, it's just an incredibly important, urgent, and pervasive concern. So yeah. yeah, and you propose the solution to this would be to live an unhooked life. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and or and actually, uh, probably the more precise way that I didn't have time to go into would be a selectively hooked life. Hmm. So uh, I do think that we're meant to be hooked by the fear of the Lord. I do think we're meant to be hooked by. Uh, by the call of the gospel to be people who live as agents of light and salt in dark and deteriorating places. So in a way, I want to be hooked to the mission of God, to the life of God and to the mission of God. But I want, and therefore I live in the world, um, not because that's the only thing I then talk about, but those things actually set me up to have greater courage to go into places, into relationships, cross lines of separation and division, which I think are motivated uh, in their capacity largely by living an unhooked life. Whereas if I'm constantly monitoring, how, do I, how am I feeling? What is my fear zone? What's my fear rating about a relationship or an encounter or a personality? Um, it's just gonna seal the end of things, right? I mean, I think of a, of a person that I know who I was recently in a conversation with and 
and it would have been right for them to describe a person that was a mutual friend uh, as a black person because that's what they are. Mm-hmm. And and it felt to me like this person who knew this friend less well was really trying to avoid using the word black mm-hmm. to describe them. And so I said, first of all, it, am I reading that right, that that's an uncomfortable word for you? Oh, yeah, definitely uncomfortable. Why is it an uncomfortable word? Well, because I think it would offend him. Mm. I said, you know, actually, it would be a gift to him mm. if, if you were able to be free from your fear that in that case is, a, is a, literally a wrong-headed fear. Like this person will be a better, closer friend to you if you can feel absolutely at ease with the fact that his race is not your race mm. and that you are free to name that and to not, not overname it, not overemphasize um, it, and at the same time completely feel comfortable because you know what? They know they're black. <laughs> this, is not, this is not news. You are not saying, he said, but it feels like that word is always so negative. I go, well, now that's worth talking about. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's worth considering, right? Mm-hmm. That's the problem, right? So I understand how it can be that, that learning as a white person, especially, to find freedom in those spaces. But that's a self-created fear, right? Mm-hmm. That's a socialized fear. Mm-hmm. It's not a real fear. And and gradually over uh, the last months, this person has made some significant headway. And it'll be interesting to see over time how that relationship changes as, as she becomes ever more comfortable in ac- fully acknowledging and honoring this person's identity. Now, that's a, that's a subtle example, mm-hmm. but it actually feels like it's pervasive, right? Mm-hmm. How many times do people avoid even conversation uh, with people who are not like them just because of that, a fear? A fear of their own self-consciousness, their fear of, quote, saying the wrong thing, their fear of offending, their fear of, oh my gosh, oh my (laughs) Mm -hmm. gosh. Mm -hmm. Just imagine how differently life and the world would be if people simply could could lay down those fears and and do it with authenticity and honesty, no Mm -hmm. pretense, no kind of, quote, opting for colorblindness, that's, that's a fiction, that's not a truth. We mm-hmm. don't live in a colorblind world. We shouldn't live in a colorblind world. We should live in a, in a highly welcoming, hospitable, multicultural, multiracial, multiethnic yeah, world. Yeah. And that's God's picture of the church mm-hmm. in Ephesians mm-hmm. 2, right? An amazing portrait. How does the world know that Jesus and we have died and risen by living in a community of unlike people who only come together because of the unity and life in Christ who brought us from death to life. Mm-hmm. That is a witness to the church. That's the credibility that we're called to, but we often avoid for mm-hmm. many different reasons. Wow. I could just sit here and listen to you guys talk for hours. I'm just like, yes, I need to write all of this down. This is so good. Um, one question we've been asking our uh, preachers of, as of late is, what's the writing process like for you? About like how long does it take? Do you, you know, handwrite things? Do you computerize? Computerize? Sure. Do you use a typewriter? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> what is that process for you like? Yeah. Um, so I, when I first started preaching many decades ago, uh, I didn't preach without notes because it felt absolutely like the right way for me to preach. Mm-hmm. Um, it was that I was free in preaching in that way. Now, I did all the preparation, all that, but I didn't, 
I didn't come into the pulpit with anything mm-hmm. except the Bible. Wow. Um, and my conviction was, if I can't recover what I believe this text is actually saying, then I'm not ready to preach, Ooh. and I shouldn't even be wow. in the pulpit. Now, I'm not trying to excoriate people who use mo- n- notes. That's not my <laughs> point. It was that for me, I felt as though I wanted to have internalized this text and what I think it says was sufficient enough depth that I might have a note or two, but usually not. Mm. Um, so, and then seminary uh, trains a person uh, <laughs> to develop a manuscript and to write an outline mm-hmm. and to preach from these things, which I did for a long time. And one time, at, when I was a, 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 a preacher in Berkeley, still in my first part of my time in Berkeley, which was when I was serving as the college pastor, I remember being in the middle of preaching and thinking, this is total slavery. I hate having this outline and this manuscript. And I literally uh, walked around in the front of the pulpit and preached the rest of the message. And inside, I was having this metamorphosis of saying, I'm never preaching from a manuscript oh, wow. again. Mm. Um, again, it's not everybody's style, but for me, um, the preparation has to be real. All the reading and reflection and uh, absorbing of commentaries of of sometimes reflecting on other people's sermons, trying to understand what is the message. A lot of it is about prayer, the discipline. So the the longer answer to the preparation is, I prefer preaching where there's really a long season of, of preparation. Like mm-hmm. uh, if I'm going to preach, if I was doing, for example, I preached today on Daniel. Mm-hmm. But if I was getting ready to know that I was going to be preaching Daniel in for a sequence of sermons, I would begin long before it just trying as much as possible to read and absorb and think my way through what is the logic of this text? How does one, two, and three, and four, and Mm -hmm. five, and six all build on each other? How does that really? Mm -hmm. So that narrative is absolutely in me. So by the time I'm preaching the first sermon on Daniel 1, I've told myself the story of Daniel 1 to 6 many, 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 many times. Mm -hmm. And I've told it in different ways to myself. Like, what is it that's happening here? How do the pieces move together? How how does history and language and and all of the commentary background give me greater information about how to think about the text? But then how do I think about it in relationship to the community that I'm going to be preaching in? And that's where the where the chemistry of, of the study connecting to the sermon and the preaching process actually happens, right? So a lot of it happens in imagination, mm-hmm. but a lot of it meaning an imaginative projection onto the moment where you're going to preach to a given audience. So I've preached before at Menlo, but not for years. Mm-hmm. And so I I actively went through what I knew the, the room was like, what I knew the vibe of Menlo has typically been, mm-hmm. the difference between the two services, the feeling of all that Menlo has been through in recent years, mm-hmm. this pivot of last week, and this <laughs> sense of great hope about what's unfolding. Yeah. So I'm thinking, how do I step into that space with this message yeah. in a time when the Bay Area is, to me, absolutely showing every sign that the church is in exilic space? Mm-hmm. How do I explain that in a way that people can try to Hook, uh, get hooked onto it in the positive sense of hooked in mm-hmm. order to be able to then walk this road and remember the text and remember what it's actually, I think, offering us as, as examples. So it's that kind of an internalized process. Yeah. And um, it means then that in one absurd sense, I'm like always ready to preach like, I don't know, 25 sermons. Yeah. Not because of, I don't memorize anything. Sure. I'm not trying to uh, I'm not trying to overscript it. It always feels like it's real time. Mm-hmm. Even the, if a close comparison between the two sermons today, I had 
reasonable similarity, but there were definitely some things that were different, mm-hmm. a different story in the second service, mm-hmm. a different reason for why in that space it affected me in a different way. Um, anyway, my point is the ideal to me is presence to the word and presence to the community you're preaching to and trying to be as wired as you can intellectually, emotionally, socially to that actual moment. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's really good. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to do yeah. when I'm preaching. Yeah. I think we saw and we felt that. I mean, coming from most of our speakers will, if not have notes in front of them, maybe even completely teleprompter some things too. Yes, right. And that was especially true during COVID when we were pre-recording sure. a lot mm-hmm. of things. Yeah. And just the feeling of the authenticity of, you know, whether whether the the content was the same or not, the, yes. the delivery and how it was received is drastically different when it just feels like you're in conversation with someone Completely. versus yeah. being talked at. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's, a, I, I, I think personally, I lean a lot more towards that style because as we talked about fear earlier or guarding ourselves, I can yes. feel like I can let my guard down a little bit when I'm in conversation with yes. someone. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's my sense of what preaching should be. And as a, as a, you know, as the regular preaching pastor of a congregation, I always felt like, you know, preaching here is just a really long conversation. Mm-hmm. And I tend to be the instigator since I'm the preacher in the pulpit. So in that sense, mm-hmm. I might be the provocateur, but <laughs> in the end, it's it's all for the sake of continuing conversations with the with the congregation, right? Mm-hmm. So even though in the moment that I'm speaking, it's not two directional, uh, it's immediately two directional. I mean, it, first of all, it's, it feels two directional to me when I'm preaching because I'm trying to do the best I can to read people's body language and faces and trying to understand is this connecting? What are the places that seem to be maybe itching more than other places? Um, but also the feeling that yes, but then I then the conversation actually begins and people have to take, I mean, I'm prepared to take up the conversation with the community. I want to point people back to the text. I want to have us think about what does it mean to live that kind of life. I don't want people to pursue a Daniel diet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like that would be, that would be perhaps the most trivializing way of reading (laughs) Daniel one, right? Like let's get the food right. No, it's actually not about that. Let's get the identity Right. The food right. is the embodiment of an identity in that case, but it's actually the identity that's at stake. It's not imitating the food. Um, so, yeah, anyhow. That's so great. And earlier today, I was in online church and I threw out an option for some of our friends that were watching online to text in some questions. Nice. And so, one of those is actually relating to identity. Yes. Uh, our, the question reads, what are some spiritual practices that you utilize to remind yourself of the identity that you have in Christ? Well, there's mm. many, um, but one of the things that I think is pervasive to me in most days is simply the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son mm. of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Mm. The, the repetition of that on any given day happens more times than I could possibly count. And it happens um, as breath prayers, it happens simply um, in conversation, there's moments in meetings, there's moments of debate, there's moments of disagreement. Um, when, when I'm saying to myself, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's, so let's be really clear, Mark, about who you are in this moment, who they are, how I want to order my life in a way that's responsive as a 
child of God, not as the president, but insofar as it is the president, how do I live as a president in a way that is going to be reflective of the power of God, not the, primarily the reflection of my ability to get what I want? So those are things that are all at play, right? And they happen in ordinary conversations. Um, and it's, a, it's just a pervasive discipline. So that has, it has been extremely important to me. Um, yes, regular Bible study. Yes, absolutely. Uh, seasons of prayer, retreats of mm. a day or a half day where, uh, where you can just be working in prayer and Bible reading and other reading, perhaps with people on your own, whatever it might be, to be able to actually step into that space and claim mm. your identity again and again and again. And actually, as a member of the body of Christ, wanting to be a reflector to people of that identity. So I try, when I am giving feedback to people, to primarily be giving feedback about who they are more than what they are doing. Hmm. I want to honor what they're doing, and I want to sometimes have to correct what they're doing. Um, but the principal thing that I'm trying to do is to give feedback about who I discern them to be and how they are living out their own identity. Wow. That's great. I never would want to receive feedback from people, but you seem like someone I would. <laughs> Now's not the time. We yeah, have one more question. Now. Well, I could give you a few thoughts. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you so much. This we'll we'll end with this or we'll we'll end with this question. Um, and it's a little bit more broad. Uh -huh. So this this person asks, as an observer of culture in church, where do you think the church is headed? It seems like normal structures and systems are less appealing to younger generations. How can we evolve and how can we adapt? Oh. Well, I'm leading a project at Fuller called Rethinking Church in the 21st Century. Mm. And Ooh. it is completely given to that set of questions. So stand by, watch <laughs> uh, for some emerging resources and other things that are, are going to be forthcoming in the next year. But I will say that that is completely the question of mm -hmm. the hour. And, and I do think it's why I preached the sermon that I preached this morning, because mm -hmm. I do think it is about really rethinking where we are, who we are, how we're going to live, how we handle and respond with, to power. So those are the kind of main table setting. Then I think it breaks out into all kinds of very specific questions around all sorts of different areas of life and culture, um, gender, race, sexuality, etc. But it also um, needs to hold the whole menu, right? It's not a snack. The gospel is not a snack. It is a whole meal. It's a whole life. It's a whole reality. Mm. Um, my dad, who was a great skeptic, um, did everything possible to try to raise his two sons not to be, quote, religious. And his critique was so powerful. Um, it's still, it's one of the most important observations I could think of. And that is that what religious people are prone to do is to take something really great and make it small. Mm. And my dad, who had a very expansive imagination and creativity, wanted his two sons to live an expansive life, not a small life. Mm. Uh, yes, particular and local and tangible in that way, but, but not small-minded, not small-hearted, etc. Mm -hmm. And it's so easy to find plenty of evidence on any given day in the press and otherwise of, of church, churches and, and Christian faith that leads people to small-making. Mm. The antidote to that is what Jesus calls the kingdom of God, which cracks open all of reality. And it's then in that expansiveness. So where are we right now? The church in America is very small-minded, extremely small-minded. And people inside, and many people in culture are saying, 
that is worth nothing. It feels like it has no credibility. It feels like it's, it's pathetically self-interested. And even people who are secular see the self-interest of the church as one of its most de-authenticating qualities. So the question then becomes, how does the church reclaim and repractice its identity in order to live in this unexpected community of unlike people, in order to be able to manifest a credible gospel that can only be explained because Jesus Christ is in the center of it? That's what the life of the church is, has always uh, meant, been meant to be. And we're simply in a moment where that's at risk of being lost to culture, ideology, powers, uh, voices, fears. And all of that is the the great terrain of the moment and the huge challenge and urgency of the gospel, the huge challenge and urgency of Fuller Seminary, Mm. uh, which is attempting to do everything we can to respond to that. Wow. So good. Well, thank you so much for your time. Happy to be here. So blessed. You blessed not only this conversation, but also our our campuses this week with this message. Again, if you didn't get a chance to listen to the message, please go back and listen to it. It was fantastic. And if you need anything this week, you can go ahead and text our team, 650-600-0402. We'd love to help point you to any resources, pray with you or walk alongside you with whatever you're going through. And again, Mark, please come back soon. Thanks, I'd love to. That would be great. I hope that'll happen. Yeah. Yes, Thanks. thank you so much. Have All a great week, everyone. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. 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 Well, thanks so much for listening. And our hope is that this helps you connect deeper to Menlo Church throughout the week. We believe church doesn't just happen on Sundays. And this is just one of the ways you can connect with us and grow in your faith whenever and wherever you're listening. We'd love to come alongside you in prayer to encourage you or walk through anything that you're going through. All you have to do is text our online team at 650-600-0402. Thanks again for tuning in. This was Menlo Midweek.